Good morning. That was great. Those praises, it does humble us and it fills me with joy and it makes me so glad to be back here today. Good morning. I'm Deb Haygood and uh, it's wonderful to see your beautiful faces out there. How many of you are here for the very first time? Your first time ever to be at Woman in the Word. I don't want to put you on the spot. Raise your hand. It kind of helps me to see. Good. We are glad to have you. Welcome. I'd love to meet you. So if you want, come down and introduce yourself to me. We're glad to have you here. We are going to continue on this semester with our study uh, entitled, Come Follow Me. Uh, Last semester, I think they're handing out outlines and verse sheets if you need those. Raise your hand and I'll get those to you. Last semester, we looked at the 12 disciples, those 12 men that Jesus chose to live with him and walk with him and learn from him. And then after his death, they would go out to proclaim his story of love and life and life eternal. We looked closely at them. We got up close and personal and learned all about them. And we saw how different they were. And I hope some of you, um, or all of you, can remember some of the lessons we learned about these disciples. And one big lesson that stands out to me is that we saw how different these 12 men were from each other. They had different personalities and talents. They all had flaws. They were sinners. And yet Jesus loved them, and he used them in a mighty way all but Judas, who disqualified himself. But he used those men that were different and, um, and filled with flaws in mighty ways. And so that truth can give each of us a certainty that God can use us just like we are when we come to Jesus and follow him. This semester we're going to study six New Testament women. Uh, We're going to look at some that actually knew Jesus and followed him, and then some that came to know Jesus through the ministry of Paul. And that's what we're also going to study this semester. About two-thirds of the semester, 11 weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul, that extraordinary apostle, his life and his ministry. And we'll do it mainly by looking at the book of Galatians, his first book that he wrote, and then 2 Timothy, the last book he wrote. And in between will be two of those women, Priscilla and uh, Lydia. Now, if you're thinking to yourselves, wow, that doesn't exactly match the description that we read in the bulletin. Um, It said New Testament women and men. And it sounds like you're just going to talk about Paul. And you're right. That is, it's New Testament women and Paul. And when Shelley and I wrote this up, it was the end of November, and we got together and we wrote up the description about what we're going to study, and we said New Testament women and Paul. And we thought, that doesn't sound exactly right. And so we tried to change it. Okay, the New Testament women along with Paul. No, New Testament women and the life of Paul. And we thought, we just started laughing. We're going to end up on a church bulletin blooper as we that. So we just, in our frustration, wrote New Testament women and men. So to avoid that church bulletin blooper. But, but speaking of the bloopers, I had a friend look um, them up for me, and I, I brought a few to share. We're not going to be on it. Um, I think we've heard some of these before, but it's, it's interesting to me, um, I'm not a great typist, how just one you know, little letter can make a difference like this. Evening massage, 6 p.m. <laughs> or how about this? Um, if you want to... Uh, 
Let's see, the senior choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. (laughs) That's nice to know. How about don't let worry kill you? Let the church help. (laughs) Thursday night potluck supper, prayer and medication will follow. (laughs) I like this. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. I think they got the comma in the wrong place. How many of you have children and don't know it? That's kind of... Okay, how about this? How many of you have left one of your children in the nursery and gone home? Be honest. Okay, I see those hands. Yeah, my husband and I, we only had two children, and we left one of them in the nursery, and I think it was our daughter that said, Mom, where's Ben? You know, she was about two. We're like, oh, yeah. I think he was little. We'd, we'd forgotten. We were... Anyway... How about Tuesday at 4, there will be an ice cream social. All ladies giving milk, please come early. (laughs) This one is funny. The ladies of the church have cast-off clothing of every kind. They may be seen in the church basement Friday. (laughs) Weight watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use the large double door at the side entrance. There's somebody that wasn't thinking. The Reverend Merriweather spoke briefly, much to the delight of the congregation. And the last one, ladies, don't forget our rummage sale. Here's a good chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping. Bring your husband along. We won't be in the church bloopers. We are going to study New Testament women, and you all know, So let's turn today. We're going to start with the woman at the well. Turn to John chapter 4. And there is a picture of our woman at the well. And um, that actually turned out pretty good. You see that well kind of dug at the bottom corner there, and that's Jesus sitting by it. And the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, is coming down. A, A more complete title would be the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. I'm going to start with verse 1, and we're going to look at a little background here before we start into our story. And it says, verse 1, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, and that's John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So we're going to begin. We know here that Jesus has been in the south in Judea. And that is where the city of Jerusalem is, and that is where the temple is in Jerusalem. And along with the temple come the religious leaders of the day. We learned last semester that they were more concerned with religious ritual, with those man-made regulations and performing meaningless ceremonies than they were about God. They had gotten very far away from the heart of God, from true worship. These religious leaders, the Pharisees were a part of the group, they began to be aware of Jesus and the fact that many people were beginning to follow after him. You might say that Jesus was on their radar screen. And he knew that now was not the time for a major confrontation. And so along with his disciples, he leaves and he goes um, up north to Galilee. He's going to leave Judea and go to Galilee. Excuse me. All of this is according to God's plan and God's timing. Now, you remember Galilee. That was where most of the disciples were from, all of the disciples, really, except for Judas. In Galilee was the city of Nazareth, where Jesus had grown up. 
Also Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, that was where Jesus' headquarters were. And so they were making their way up to Galilee. Let's go on and read verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now this is an unusual scene. You might say, what is wrong with this picture? And the first thing is, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. That's unusual because Jews and Samaritans um, didn't mix. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They considered them half-breeds and outcasts. On the map, you see there, it's kind of scrunched up a little bit, but you see that Galilee is in the north, Judea is in the south, and in between is that region called Samaria. Now, in the Old Testament, about 700 years before this, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was made up of Galilee and Samaria. And they were both ruled by um, different kings. They each had their own king. And so 700 years before this, Assyria came in and they took the northern kingdom into captivity and they dispersed the Jews. But a few Jews stayed around in that area of Samaria and they intermarried with the Assyrians. And that's where they became this, uh, these half-breeds. They were racially mixed. And their religion also became uh, mixed. They kept some of the Jewish laws. They kept the first five books of the Old Testament. But then they mixed in some of the Assyrian pagan ritual. And it had developed into this religion over the years. And their place of worship was on Mount Gerizim not in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Now, Sychar, this uh, village where Jesus is, that was in the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So we see that the um, Jews were uh, considered the Samaritans unclean, and so they would go to great lengths to avoid going through Samaria. And that's what this map does map is on uh, the screen here. It shows us uh, another route. They would go up north and then they would cut over, cross the Jordan River, go up through Perea, and then kind of get into the edge of Samaria and go into Galilee. Now you see that that is a longer route. It was a harder route. They were crossing the Jordan River twice. It was much easier and much faster just to go through Samaria. But they didn't. They chose the harder route so they would avoid being around and running into the Samaritans. And yet, Jesus goes back to Galilee through Samaria. And it says there, he had to go. He had to go. Circle that word, had. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? This story of the woman at the well is the answer. So Jesus goes through Uh, um, Samaria because he had to and he comes to this town called Sychar and he's sitting at Jacob's well. Now Jacob, this is Jacob from Genesis, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. It's uh, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Jacob had 12 sons. 
they, the brothers, sold Joseph into slavery and he goes to Egypt. They're reconciled later on. And these 12 sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when they're uh, 400 years later, when Moses comes on the scene to deliver these Israelites out of slavery from Egypt and take them to the promised land, uh, we read that they are probably more than 2 million people. And they go into the promised land and these 12 tribes divide up the land and that becomes the nation Israel. Now some of you out there can see you glazing over. You're going, Deb, Deb, enough of the history. But this is so exciting to me because Jacob dug this well about 1,800 years before this story takes place. And God knew when Jacob dug that well, Jesus knew when Jacob dug that well, that 1,800 years later, Jesus would be sitting at that well talking to a Samaritan woman because he had to go through Samaria. This is exciting because this is God's plan, God's story that begins right in Genesis and goes all the way through to the New Testament. These are not random books just put in the Bible. These are books with a story of God's plan of love and redemption for mankind that starts in the beginning of Genesis and it goes all the way through the Old Testament and into the New and into this time right here. This story of love and redemption goes on from this story. And 2,000 years later, we're included. We're reading this same story. And we can know that we are a part of this story, that God's plan of love and redemption has gone on through the ages and has come to us today. That's exciting to me. That's what's exciting to look at the Bible and see how it is connected. So Jesus sits at the well And he waits for the Samaritan woman to come along. And he's there at high noon. And we know that, that it's high noon, because the sixth hour in Jewish time was noon. And who should come along but this Samaritan woman? And she comes at high noon to draw water. And so this is the second unusual uh, thing in this picture. Everyone had to draw water. Picture this in your mind. There's no running water into the town, so everyone from the city has to come and draw water from the well. And the custom tells us, and it only makes sense, that the women would gather together, and they would go together, and they would talk along the way. And they would usually go early in the morning when it was cool, or later in the evening, in the cool of the day. And you can picture them walking along, talking to each other. Hey, did you hear little Ruthie is going to have a baby? And what about Deborah? She's getting married. And Miriam, have you seen what's going on with her? And then they probably looked at each other, which is what I do when I walk with my friend, and say, what are you fixing for supper tonight? And they would say, lamb again, you know, lamb. So it was a fun time for these women to go to the well. And yet we see the Samaritan woman, and she is going in the heat of the day alone. And that tells us something about her. She is avoiding the other women at all cost. So here's Jesus. He's tired. We get a glimpse of his humanity. That's a sweet picture there. He's tired from the journey, and he's probably hot, and he's thirsty. And he sits by the well waiting for the Samaritan woman because you know that he knew that the Samaritan woman was coming along. We don't even know her name, and yet Jesus loved this woman. And when she gets there, 
Jesus asks her for a drink. Now, here's your third unusual thing in this scene. Jewish men did not talk to Samaritan women. In fact, men did not talk to women, especially a strange man talking to a strange woman. There's three reasons why that was uh, unusual to see Jesus talking to her. So how does the Samaritan woman respond? First, before we get to that, I want to say Jesus is sitting there because, as we have said, he came to do the will of God. God has a plan. It was set in the motion way back in Genesis. And Jesus has come to live out that plan. And we read that on your verse sheet. I have a couple of verses. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to seek and to save what was lost. That included this Samaritan woman, because he had to go through Samaria. So how does she respond? Well, on your outline I have, she asks some unbelieving questions. They're filled with surprise and doubt and confusion, maybe some cynicism. Let's read verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Her first question here sounds a bit flippant, um, maybe even a little bit rude, but maybe she was weary and a little cynical, and here's another guy. Um, What does he want? You know, we don't know her whole story, but we do know, you studied in your small group, that she had had five husbands. We don't know if she was widowed or if they divorced her or both. We don't know what happened, but we know that her life must have been hard, and whatever choices she had made in the past we also learn that now she's living with a man outside of marriage. She may have walked to that well on that day feeling empty, feeling lonely, feeling tired of this immoral lifestyle, longing for love and acceptance. You know, have you ever been there, weary and discouraged with your life, wanting things to be different? I think that's how she must have felt. And Jesus answers her. He answers this Samaritan woman, a social outcast, even among her own people. He answers her gently, and he speaks of living water. Now, Jesus has piqued her curiosity with this living water. And her next question is honest, but filled with doubt. But it's also respectful. We see her being skeptical, but respectful because she addresses him as sir. And she asks him, where can you get this water? You don't even have anything to um, put down into the well and draw it out with. Are you greater than Jacob? And she must have been a pretty smart gal because she kind of is associating herself with Jacob, who she knows is also the patriarchs of the Jews. And so she kind of throws that out there. Jesus realizes that he has her intent, her attention, and so he goes on to try and make it clear that he's not talking about water in the well, 
Instead, he's talking about spiritual water, water that can satisfy her spiritual need. Living water, you talked about it in your small groups. Living water is new life. I loved it that Karen talked about new and what that means, new life. Living water is new life. It's that eternal life that comes up, that's within us um, through the Holy Spirit. Living water was also mentioned in the Old Testament. It was a metaphor that referred to the knowledge of God and His grace that in turn provided cleansing, spiritual life, and power through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling. And you'll see some of those references. I put them on your verse sheet. Uh, Two of them are in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two sins, for they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. In Jeremiah 17.13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And then we see in John 7, this is Jesus giving us even more uh, clarification on that. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling us when we believe in him. Let's continue reading verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And she's still concentrating and focusing on physical water, and I can understand that. I'm a pretty concrete gal, and it probably would have taken me a long time to catch on to what Jesus was talking about as well. And I also understand how she didn't want to come back and draw water anymore. She wanted this water. She, did, that would, she would not have to get thirsty. I hate being thirsty, and I like water. Water is oftentimes my drink of choice. And I realized I kind of like this whole story because I like water. I like looking at water. I love seeing the ocean. I like swimming in water, and I like drinking water. So I can understand how she would feel. Scott, um, my husband, we would go on hikes and uh, walks, and um, he's, I call him the camel because two glasses of water, and he can hike all day. I don't care how hot it is. But I have to have my water with me. I do not want to get thirsty. And so he affectionately calls me WW. This is secret language, and that stands for water whiner. So he always says, you know, WW, do you have your water with you? And one time as a joke, he bought this little hiking belt that had two places for two bottles of water. Now, the kids laughed and laughed. I loved it. I wore it for years because I could have two bottles and I could go all day. I was uh, set. I can understand how she would want physical water to drink that so that she would never be thirsty again. But what does Jesus say? He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. While the Samaritan woman is seeking physical water, Jesus addresses the pain of her physical life. And in so doing begins to awaken that spiritual thirst, that thirst for spiritual water. She responds to him in 19, verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You know, she must have been taken aback. She must have been blown away to think this stranger knows all about me. He knows all the intimate things in my life. And so with respect, she calls him a prophet. But she cannot bear to deal with the reality of her sin, the reality of her painful life. So she tries to distract him with this age-old religious question, this argument that had been one of the very points that was a cause of great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, where to worship. The Samaritans claimed Mount Gerizim was the spot, whereas the Jews said Jerusalem on Mount Zion. But Jesus is not distracted. In fact, he welcomes this chance to talk about worship with her personal worship. This is one of the greatest discourses on worship from Jesus in the whole New Testament. So let's look at these um, verses. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and it has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, who speak to you, am he. I am he. These verses on worship, um, let's go through them and kind of just explain some of this. This is really kind of great stuff here. When he talks about there's a time coming, that time is Jesus going to the cross. It's his death. And with his death and resurrection would come in a new way of worship. No longer would it require going to the temple and offering animal sacrifices. There wouldn't be a central place that we would have to worship. Um, As believers, we would worship differently. He tells the Samaritan that her religion, the Samaritan religion, was confused and with error. And the truth, truth is salvation would come from the nation Israel, God's chosen people. More specifically, from Jesus, a Jew from the line of David. And he says we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And we know that Jesus is truth. We talked about that last semester in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the truth and the way and the life. No one cometh to the Father but through me. Jesus is the truth, and he is the way to the Father. And you must worship God through Jesus. There's no other way to worship God but through Jesus. And so Jesus is giving us great freedom here. When we worship, it will not be dependent on a particular place or with particular, particular ritual. Instead, worship must flow from a heart that is right with God and a life that is consistent with Scripture. That's what worship is. Worship is that humble, passionate, ardent devotion for God, to know God, to love Him, and to pursue Him devotedly. It doesn't call for a certain place. We can worship God outside. We can worship God in here. We can worship God with the lights turned down, or we can worship God in the bright sunlight. There's no 
certain ritual or practice that we have to follow to do that. Those, those things aren't wrong. We must beware that they can become rituals, that we always must have it dark to worship. And that's okay, too, as long as you realize that darkness is not the worship. That's the practice. That's what, what you do. Worship must flow from hearts that are right, right with God, and for lives that are consistent with Scripture. Jesus was talking about great freedom in worship. And there must have been something about these words that touched the woman, and her spiritual thirst was awakened. Her spiritual need was realized, and she longs for the Messiah to explain all this to her. Maybe she was even thinking, could this be the Messiah? And so she brings this up. I know the Messiah is coming, and Jesus says... I am he. I am he. This is the ultimate claim. What an amazing statement that he reveals himself to this Samaritan woman. She goes from calling him a Jewish man to a prophet. Do you see this progression? To the Messiah, and he says, I am he. Jesus didn't usually make such a bold uh, claim to people. He usually kind of couched it by saying, I'm the son of man, or different things. We only see this a few places in scripture. And I am, the Jewish people would know this, this is the name of God. Back in the Old Testament, when Moses was sent by God to uh, take the Israelites out of captivity, he was nervous about going, and he said, okay, who do I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am. In fact, the verse is on your sheet. It's uh, verse sheet. Exodus 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That, they took those letters, I am who I am, and that's where we, they get the word Yahweh, their name for God. And Jesus is saying, I am. He's saying, I am God. Have you noticed in this story that he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't rebuke the Samaritan woman for her lifestyle. He doesn't really even call for repentance. He doesn't ridicule her or admonish her for the way that she speaks to him or for the questions that she asks him. Instead, he offers her the gift of eternal life. He offers her living water, a gift to be received. And she receives it. And she believes. She believes that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself. And one of the ways we know that she believes is what happens next. And so let's read verses 27 through 30. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, I love that, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. She is so excited about her new life, this living water that must have filled her. She wants to tell those very people that she was trying to avoid. And so in her haste, she leaves the water jar and she goes into town and she begins to tell them, about Jesus. And I love the way she did it. She's pretty smart because instead of just coming in and saying, I have found the Christ, she says who he is and then she asks a question. She kind of does the same thing Jesus did. She piques their curiosity by saying, could this be the Christ? I think she knew this was the Christ. She believed with her heart it was. But she says to them, could this be the Christ? And they begin to make their way out of the town to see him. 
Verse 31 says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Now, commentaries say that he was probably talking about John the Baptist as the one that had done the work, that had sown the seed, and then the disciples came along with Jesus and they began to reap that. I think maybe Jesus was talking about the Samaritan woman because we see that she is going into town and she's going to bring many people to see Jesus because of her testimony. We don't see them saying anything about the disciples and their testimony, so I'm not real sure they said much when they went into town to get food. So maybe he's saying, talking about the Samaritan woman. At any rate, you know that the disciples are probably pretty confused. They're trying to bring food. They're talking about physical food. And here's Jesus once again. He's talking about spiritual food. And he starts talking about the fields that are ripe. And they look out. And I don't think they saw fields that were ripe. In fact, in Eugene Peterson's um, devotional, he said they looked out and saw an empty lot, a vacant lot, where Jesus saw fields ripe for harvest. Now, I know about empty lots. When I was little, in first grade, um, we lived in a suburb outside of Chicago. It was called Skokie, Skokie, Illinois. And we lived, we lived in kind of a poor um, section of town, and there were just many, you know, uh, these little fourplex things with two apartments on the bottom and two on the top, and they were just row after row of them. And it was still kind of fun as a kid because there were tons of children to play with. And at the end of the block was this empty lot, this empty lot. And as a little first and second grader, it was a little bit scary and mysterious to me because in the winter it was filled with snow and the big kids would make a big snow mountain and then they would take their toboggan and they would slide down it and I just stood at the side and watched. And then spring would come and the snow would melt and the grass would come up and people threw junk in the empty lot. But the kids would begin to make a path, and I myself even walked through this empty lot because you could get to the other side of the block without going around by cutting through the empty lot. So there were always these little paths, and as summer came, the grass grew even taller and more junk was in the empty lot, and it was kind of an adventure. But one day I realized that adults saw it differently. Um, They brought dirt and sand, and they dumped it in this empty lot, and they began to build an apartment building. All of us kids were crushed, but my mom one night said to my dad, I'm so glad they're building that apartment because that empty lot was an eyesore. And for the first time, I really saw that empty lot through my mom's eyes, and I thought, I guess it is. You know, it's got weeds and junk, and we walked through it. It was an eyesore. That is how the disciples probably looked at Samaria. They saw an empty lot. But Jesus saw fields ripe for harvest. And I thought about myself as a follower of Jesus. I see empty lots where I should see fields ripe for harvest. I look at places or people, and I don't see someone that needs the love of Jesus. I see an empty lot. And maybe you're like that too. And I think as followers of Jesus, we need to pray that God would open our eyes, that we might see these people and places as fields ripe to harvest, not as empty lots. 
but as fields ripe for harvest. In verse 39 we read, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more, many more became believers. She was the first believer, and many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. You know, that's the first step in being a follower of Jesus. You must believe. The Samaritan woman took that first step. Step. You must believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Believe and accept this new life, this free gift that is offered to us. One of my favorite verses that talks about that is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the first step, and many of you, probably most of you in this room, have already taken that. If you haven't, And you want to today, I would love to talk with you after Bible study is over. Come see me. But but for those of us that have taken that, we believe in Jesus. We've answered that call to follow him. The Samaritan woman can be an example for us um, because the next thing she did was she ran and she told others who Jesus is and what he had done in her life. It wasn't um, that big testimony. It was simple. It was who Jesus is and what he had done in her life. And we can do that the same way. We can tell others who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So who is Jesus? That's why I love this story. Because it's mainly about Jesus and who he is. And I see four truths in this story. There's more, but I see four here that we can learn and then tell others. The first one is Jesus loves everyone. And you talked about these in your group. Probably all of you talked about all four of these. Jesus loves everyone. He knows no prejudice. He has no cultural restraints. Jesus' love is divine. It's not like human love that has limits. The love of Jesus is indiscriminate and all-encompassing. His love knows no boundaries. He knows no boundaries. John 3.16 That's a wonderful verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 3.16 is similar about about Jesus' love. The next truth is Jesus is the only way to eternal life. There is no other way, ladies. Jesus is the only way. He is the one who meets our spiritual need. He is the giver of living life water. John 6:40 says, "For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life." And John 10:10, 10, 10, "I have come that they may have life and have it to the full." Jesus is the way to eternal life. Third, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. We see it so clearly in this passage. He is God. John 8, 58, this is uh, one other place where Jesus calls himself, I am. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And then in John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And the fourth truth, Jesus understands people. 
He understands us. He understands us. This can be a truth that's meaningful to you and I. It can also be a truth that's meaningful to those that you're telling about Jesus. Jesus understands that he knows our discouragements. He knows our failures. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Sometimes it's not easy to think about going out and telling others about Jesus. It's not easy um, for me to think about that. But when I look at the life of this Samaritan woman and I see her example of telling others, just simply telling them who Jesus is and what he's done for me, I want to be like that Samaritan woman. We too, as followers that follow Jesus, let's tell others about him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a good God you are. Thank you for these women. Thank you for these praises. Father, we lift them up to you. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life and for his love. Thank you that he is living water, that we can all accept that gift. Father, give us courage, give us boldness. Father, help us as followers of Jesus to go out and to tell others about him. Lord, even this week, I pray that each one of us would have an opportunity to tell someone just what we know to be true about Jesus. Bless us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.